This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Hour three as we unfurl the flag. Let's see if anybody salutes. Come Sunday, that flag will be blown right off the flagpole. 100 kilometer an hour winds. That's what we're anticipating. However, uh, as we look forward to our third hour, uh, we'll be talking at the bottom of the hour to the past president of the Ontario Autism Coalition, who's decided to uh, not work for the PC government anymore after uh, recent changes to the autism file. So we'll advance that story. And uh, needless to say, uh, when we talked about it yesterday, uh, many parents upset in the legislature's gallery uh, expressing their displeasure. We're trying to just get a sense for exactly what's in play here with the government's policies as announced by the minister, Ms. McLeod. Uh, And then, of course, uh, also arriving in conjunction with that was a study that, uh, I guess it's a poll taken by Angus Reid talking about autism, because a lot of people draw that connection, not autism per se, I'm sorry, vaccines, and uh, they put that connection together, uh, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly, but we're going to clarify that as we move forward. Uh, And by the way, we need to move forward because, as I've often likened this to uh, a shark that needs to move forward, well, it's a Woody Allen quote from Annie Hall, remember that movie? A relationship is like a shock. It's got to move forward or it dies. And what we have here is a dead shock. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about sharks, amongst other things, as our buddy Dan Riskin has joined us in the studio, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Dan, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. That's a good movie. I mean, you're not, I don't, you know, Woody Allen's a terrible person, but that's a very funny movie. It and, was, uh, yeah. And that, this was well before anybody really got uh, yeah, a notion about exactly, his exactly. predilection for whatever. Yeah. But, you know, on the shark question, I'm kind of curious. You, the evolutionary biologist, and I watch these shows, even Shark Week has me sure. fascinated. Yeah. Uh, but sharks are, you know, obviously uh, the greatest predator, I guess, in the oceans, or one of them anyway. The great yeah. white is. You have an interesting or a fascinating insight how they hunt uh, because sharks do have to keep moving. Yeah, well, so it depends, right? So this is exciting. Most sharks don't have to keep swimming to stay alive, but great white sharks do. They have to keep swimming in order to get enough water going across the gills. And it took me a while to get my head around sort of what it's like to be a fish. But, you know, we need to breathe air. You suck in air, it goes to your lungs, and then you breathe it out and you get the oxygen out of it. Sharks need oxygen too, but they can't breathe air. So for them, they have to get the oxygen out of the water. And to do that, they have to pass the water over their gills and suck the oxygen out of it. And to get enough oxygen, they have to have a certain flow rate. And some sharks, some fish, they can just suck it back and push it across their gills and they're fine. But sharks need that extra little push from moving through the water to get enough fresh air, fresh oxygen, sorry, uh, across their gills. So sharks can't stop swimming. But what's interesting about great white sharks is that they're hunting these big, elusive, fast, like, seals that are that can do ridiculous flips in the water and all this stuff. And a very successful strategy to hunt those things is called sit and wait. And this is something you see all across the animal kingdom. Say a rattlesnake, for example, sits there, waits for something to go by, and then nails it. It's not running around looking for food. It sits and waits. And it's a very energetic, efficient, energetically efficient way to do things. So a shark, you know, a great white shark would like to sit and wait, but if it sits, it dies, much like a relationship in Annie Hall. Right. <laughs> all right. So uh, <laughs> while it's not sitting and waiting, it's still moving. Uh, but the seal is rather quick, too, in the water, and as you say, adroit. Uh, does the shark have a maximum speed, or does it have to adjust its speed so it's uh, more in concert with uh, the prey that it's hunting? Exactly. So these are exactly the exciting questions that we have wanted to know the answers to for, you know, since we started looking at sharks. I mean, 
since we were worried about sharks eating us, which now we're a lot less worried about, and we've realized that sharks are beautiful, wonderful things that belong in the ocean, and that it's very unlikely that they're going to eat us, unless you're a seal. And if you're a seal, you're in big trouble, because these sharks are just unbelievably good. So there's new technology now where they put these uh, basically devices that strap onto the dorsal fin of a great white shark, tells it how deep it is, how fast it's going, where it is, and it the shark's underwater, so this thing can't communicate with a satellite or anything, so the way they design them is that after 10 days it automatically detaches floats to the surface and then sends out a signal so that the people in the boat can come pick it up and download the data it's so cool so they uh they did this with 10 sharks and uh they calculated based on the size of sharks and and their shape what their optimal swimming speed would be to to travel the most distance for the least energy sort of the the most efficient cruising speed and what they found is that the sharks go much much slower than that when they're hunting So when the sharks get into a place where there's food, they slow right down maybe as much as they can, getting as close to sitting and waiting as they can. They just sort of like a crawl, Mm. moving very slowly through the water, waiting for those things to go by. And then when they show up, they just have a burst of speed and they catch the food. And this is really a hunting specific behavior because when sharks are moving between, you know, from one habitat to another, they swim pretty fast. But this, uh, the fact that they are sit and wait predators that can't sit gives you a new way to think about great white sharks. I just, to me, it makes them just seem a little bit more like they're, they're doing their best to live this weird life as giant predators in the sea. I mean, it's a fish, but it's so big that it's warm-blooded. Yeah. I mean, it's just an amazing animal. Being warm-blooded means it burns a lot of energy, means it needs lots of oxygen, means it has to keep swimming, means, I mean, all these, you, it, you have to pay to be big. Well, and uh, somebody said, uh, I guess, in terms of evolution, the shark has been with us for millions of years. Oh, yeah. It hasn't really evolved or changed much, has it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, there are new, there, the species that are here now are different from the species that were around before, but they all look pretty sharky. And so that sharky body plan of, you know, that's it's got these pectoral fins in the front and these pelvic fins, and it's got this dorsal fin, and it's got these teeth that grow in rows, all that stuff was in place before the dinosaurs, and it has not changed. And the sharks have gotten bigger. There was a great big one back in the day, about, I think, 30 million years or maybe it's 50 million years ago, called Megalodon that made a great white shark look like a guppy. And uh, But that went extinct. And so, but that main, that, that shark shape has been around since before the dinosaurs. And although there have been little changes in how big it is or where it lives or maybe what it eats, that basic, they call it a bauplan, it's a German word, but mm. that basic shape is has not changed. Well, and the other thing about sharks, you know, since their primary food source, I guess, is seals, uh, true or false, when you have these attacks by the great white off the barrier reef uh, in Australia, for example, or South Africa, where surfers are a plenty, mm-hmm. is it because surfers in their wetsuits oftentimes are mistaken for seals? Yeah, that's what that's what the the. the that's the kind of what all the shark biologists keep saying. And you're not allowed to, it's funny, it's now politically incorrect to call them a shark attack. You call it a shark bite. You have to use this word. I haven't, I, I draw the line at some point and call it a shark attack just being lazy. Mm. But in all, what usually happens is these great white sharks are swimming around where there are seals, big somethings in the water. They take a bite. They realize it's not a seal. They let it go. But the thing is about a minor shark bite from a great white shark is that you bleed like a stuck pig and then, you know, you're in big trouble. So people do sometimes die. But it's never, it's almost, I've not seen a story where the shark finishes the job. You know what I mean? Mm. It bites and then it's like, that's not really it. But it's got really (laughs) sharp teeth and a whole lot of them. Right. Uh, You know, the other thing I'm kind of curious about, not to deviate, but Watching, uh, I love these wildlife shows, Yeah, the killer whales, 
and yeah. the seals are swimming or the penguins and uh, they'll take a few of them out. But at the end of the ordeal, when they've gone into their, you know, they finished up the feeding, they'll actually push one final seal or penguin up onto shore. Like, what's that about? Well, killer whales are like the most evil. I mean, they're cute and I love them and all that stuff. But if I'm glad they don't hunt me because they are brutal. In fact, there's a story. Uh, so these great white sharks were washing up on a beach in South Africa. And it was a total mystery. And they were not only washing up on the beach, but they were washing up and they had a giant hole in their chest and their livers were missing, which is this great big organ inside a, a shark that does a whole bunch of different things for them. And otherwise, the, the sharks were un, you know, they were, they were, they hadn't bitten the tail, hadn't done anything to the face, just took out the liver. And it was a big mystery what did this. And they finally were able, using the tooth marks and all this stuff, they figured out that these these uh, these killer whales were killing great white sharks. And you think of killer, you know, great white sharks as the ones at the top of the food mm. chain, but these killer whales probably, one of, one of the hypotheses that's out there, and it's hard to prove right now, is that the, the killer whales may have gotten smart enough to flip these sharks over onto their backs so they go into tonic immobility. It's this trick you can do with sharks where if you put on their back they kind of go into like a little bit of a zen buddhist state where they don't try to bite uh-huh. if you flip a great white shark you got to be pretty big to do that but a killer whale could then you'd be able to go at it and so they think that these these killer whales went after these great white sharks flipped them over chewed out their livers and then left them to die and as a result of this uh the 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 uh sort of shark cage tourist industry in south africa had a terrible year because no great whites would go anywhere near that beach for the rest of the year they were terrified Wow. Uh, I know. It's crazy. So killer whales, they're the ones to worry about. Although there are no records of killer whales biting humans in the water in the wild, only in in aquariums. But that's really movie intersectionality there, because I'm thinking that's a horror flick. Uh, It's Shark Week, and it's also Free Willy, all combined. You know, you got the killer whale going after the shark, tearing out its liver. I mean, that's... uh, That's a million-dollar movie (laughs) idea is what that is. At least it, uh, if not more. But uh, again, with Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality, on the wildlife front, I've got to ask you, another thing that I've always been curious about, zebras, you know, they've got stripes and, uh, you know, you're thinking to yourself, black and white. I mean, uh, but the savanna is a colorful yeah. panoply. Uh, so how the hell does this work? Is that camouflage or what's going on there? You're, that is the question. And in fact, so, I mean, you go through a whole bunch of different guesses. The first guess, is it camouflage? Well, Maybe, but it turns out the predators that hunt these things probably can't even see those stripes until they get quite close. And so that might not be it. And the other thing about the predators is that um, there was a story that maybe uh, when two zebra are running next to each other and they cross paths a little bit, the stripes sort of overlap and the lion can't tell if the which zebra is which and then it gets confused and doesn't catch them. That was what I thought the answer was to this question when I was doing my undergrad. And I remember writing that on tests and getting it correct. That's what we believed. But it was wrong. It was wrong because it turns out that zebras uh, tend to have more stripes in places where biting insects are a bigger problem. Insects. Like, who? what are you, running away from insects? So these researchers were like, what is the story with the zebras and the insects? And so what they did is they went to a zoo in Britain where there were zebras and horses, and then they dressed the horses up as zebras. So they made videos of flies going after these different equids, you know, the zebras and the horses, to see how effective they were. And here's the crazy thing. When a horse fly, which is going to drink the blood of a horse, and in a bad scenario for the horse, is going to drop off parasites, so it's very bad for the horse. Um, if, if this horse fly approaches a normal horse, it sees the horse, it's, well, it smells the horse from a distance, it gets close, it lands on the horse, and it starts to bite. But when it's a zebra, it's like it approaches from the smell, and then it just like either misses it or crashes into it. 
Hmm. And you're like, what? what? What's wrong with you? And the thing, the, the hypothesis is that these flies have, a, you know, the way they perceive motion is through a moving visual field, things moving past the sides of their heads. And there are some optical illusions where you look at a black and white wheel and it starts to spin on you and it starts to make you kind of dizzy and you move it away from your face and closer and it gives, gets you a little bit dizzy. Apparently that happens to flies because the stripes are not uniform uh, thickness. And so it's hard for them to kind of tell how fast they're going or what's going on. And so they only land successfully on the zebras a quarter as much as they do on horses. And so just having stripes is an effective way to keep flies off of you, which, and the way they proved this and really showed it strongly is they took the horses and they put blankets over them. And if they put a white blanket on, the flies go there. If they put a black blanket on, the flies go there. If they put a zebra pattern blanket on, the flies can't figure it out. They, they don't land on the horse. So the take-home message is if you're going somewhere with a lot of bugs, go to some 80s retro store yeah. and buy yourself a, the ugliest zebra T-shirt you can find. And you, everybody will laugh at you, but you won't have as many mosquito bites. Wow. Isn't so that crazy? Strobe effect to uh, an epileptic, I suppose. Yeah. It's the same idea. Well, listen, I wanted to ask finally because, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of moose up in the northern wilds during black fly season. we got to yeah. get them some kind of zebra uh, whatever <laughs> covering. When it comes to uh, having these uh, little pinprick things going into you, acupuncture becomes a big question mark for me, whether or not it has any efficacy. Uh, I've had treatments over the years for uh, pulled hamstrings and so on and oh, so yeah? forth. Yeah. Uh, but what's the science now say? You're the evolutionary biologist. What do you hear or know about acupuncture? Well, here's the deal with acupuncture. I want to ask you first, did you find that it helped? Because I've never had it. Well, there was that. There was massage in conjunction with that. Right. And so it was about, you know, 10 days usually before everything straightened out. They say the muscle fibers are like spaghetti and they got sort of pulled apart. Yeah. And then you sort of straighten them away. Uh, I, I Really, I can't tell you definitively. Yeah. Well, you're a critical thinker. That's one thing I know about you. And what often happens with a lot of these cures is that there's word of mouth. And something that was going to get better anyway, somebody gets a treatment and then they think, uh, you know, it, it cured me, but it wasn't necessarily that. Or maybe sometimes it's just the experience of going and getting some kind of treatment that gives you this psychological benefit that helps you heal more quickly. And so, you know, that's called placebo, of course. And it's hard to tease these things apart. And so I was really excited when I saw a paper come out about uh, the efficacy of acupuncture for, uh, it was actually a group of uh, women who were going through menopause and who were having a lot of troublesome symptoms. And so they set up the experiment. They had 70 people and half of them got acupuncture and half of them didn't. And then they asked the women to rate their symptoms on this scale. And the people who graded the scales, you know, didn't know which woman it had come from and all this stuff. And they found a significant difference. They found that uh, the number of hot flashes went down, uh, that the amount of sweating went down, that sleeping problems went down, that emotional symptoms went down, all as a result of getting these treatments. But the issue is that their control group didn't get any kind of treatment, right? So... It might be the experience. It, it, what this study shows is that women who have the experience of going and getting acupuncture tend to rate their symptoms as being better than women who do not have that experience of going and doing that. Now, whether it's the acupuncture itself, whether it's the place where those needles went that helped, whether you would have had the same effect if the needles went somewhere else, or whether you'd have the same effect if you'd been unconscious when the uh, needles went in and you don't you didn't feel it. I mean, there are ways you could tease this out experimentally, and that just isn't done. So 
What this shows is, I mean, if you're having symptoms and you want to try acupuncture, this would suggest that going and get the going and getting the acupuncture will make you feel better about things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the acupuncture works, right? It's right. a subtle difference uh-huh. uh, that is not. Uh, so it's still an open question about whether acupuncture works, even though there's a study right here that says that the experience of acupuncture works. Well, I find it fascinating, even that acupuncture would be uh, considered well in some cultures, uh, Eastern cultures, it's a uh, five thousand year old science or something but how they determine where those pins go in to make uh whatever you know remedial uh properties who would have figured that out right yeah no it's i I mean that said you know there's often a grain of truth in these things but the thing i love about the scientific method is that if there is truth to it then you can figure it out so like uh you know there's uh all kinds of these different treatments. It's a friend of mine's a rattlesnake guy, and he always loves to talk about how half the rattlesnake bites are dry bites. They don't inject you with the venom. And so anytime you have some weird way of curing a snake bite, it'll work half the time, right? Because people think, oh, well, you know what? I sucked on the, I sucked on the bite and then the, my husband lived. And then, you know, that's because there was no venom, but you don't know that. So next time you you suck on the bite because you can't tell. So with acupuncture, it's still an open question. I would love for it to be true, but I just, the the evidence isn't there yet. Which brings us full circle to the next Woody Allen movie, Bananas, if you saw that. (laughs) And the snake bit the woman in the breast and everybody wanted to suck out the poison. Do you remember they rushed, all all the revolutionaries rushed towards her? No placebo there, no placebo there. (laughs) Finally, I've got to ask, because in a moment we're going to talk to the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, who's... Poll study showed that uh, 30% of Canadians are still conflicted over the science around vaccines. Mm. And since we're talking scientific method, uh, and then we'll talk about autism as well, any correlation between autism and vaccines? There is no correlation between vaccinating your kids and them getting uh, autism. My kids were all vaccinated. I believe that as a scientist. I believe it as a parent. Uh, I remember once talking to somebody about this, and and, uh, I was uh, complaining about the misinformation that's out there, and she said, well, I trust a mom. And the fact is that a lot of the scientists who work on this are moms who care about their kids. And the science is uniformly in favor of the the fact that there is no link. That said, I think it's an interesting scientific question about why we find ourselves in 2019 with so many people refusing to vaccinate their kids when the evidence is all there, and how how people are convinced by different streams of information and why people won't trust the same doctors who can, you know, give you treatments for diseases, the same scientists who can put a spacecraft, you know, in, in orbit around the earth. Uh, but somehow all of a sudden we don't trust them when it comes to this one interesting question. But equally, you know, a lot of people have questions as to why we see this rapidly expanding incidence of autism as well. Absolutely. But, you know, there are scientific ways to look for correlations, and the people have done those tests to death. Autism is being noticed more, but it's also on the rise. The number of people born with autism is going up, and it's a big mystery why, but it is not correlated with getting vaccines. That is just not the reason that uh, that it's on the rise. And so a better use of energy is for us to keep asking questions about where it comes from and how to treat it. Uh, but uh, when we don't vaccinate, you know, if you think autism is bad, wait till your kids, you know, have a debilitating disease that they can't recover from. Well, uh, you've set the table here for our next two segments. We're going to just find out from the exec director of the Angus Reid Institute why this survey shows that uh, there is still a lot of questioning surrounding vaccines. And then we'll find out why uh, the past president of Ontario Autism resigned from the PC party after changes to the autism file. Dan, I want to thank you for dropping by again as usual. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 